Just a reminder that Stats and Stories is running its data visualization contest to celebrate its 300th episode. You can grab data about the show to analyze and submit your entry at statsandstories.net slash contest. Your entry has to be there by June 30th. The collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank in early March left many wondering whether the global financial system was on the precipice of a 2008-style meltdown. Just as the waters seemed to calm after that, UBS stepped in to buy Credit Suisse as that bank collapsed. And as we record this very episode, regional First Republic Bank seems to be teetering. The risks inherent to and the regulation of banking is a focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist John Baylor, Emeritus Professor of Statistics at Miami University. Our guest today is John Lichty, Professor in the Smeal College of Business at Penn State University, with a courtesy appointment as a Professor of Statistics at the Eberly College of Science. Lichty is interested in the creation of public goods and the role of universities can play in those efforts. Past initiatives include leading an effort that resulted in a provision in the Dodd-Frank Act of 2010 that created the Office of Financial Research in the U.S. Treasury. Lichty's an expert in marketing research, computational statistics and high-performance computing, and derivative pricing and asset allocation, as well as financial stability. He's also a fellow of the American Statistical Association and a fellow of the Royal Statistics Society. John, thank you so so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. How concerned should we all be about the health of banking systems right now? Um, I think in general, we should not let that concern go away. I think the current system, um, I'll, I'll answer it in two ways. I think in general, I, I do not think that the governments will allow the system to um, collapse in any way. So I wouldn't think that we're going to be in concerned of that. Um, but I do think there's a real, very real concern that we may have what we've what I would call a financial crisis. And the way I tend to look at financial crisis is when the taxpayer's money is put to work in the financial system to stabilize it. So the taxpayers are asked to take a loss um, on some asset class or some group of assets in order to maintain the financial system, keep it going, because if you didn't, the loss incurred by the broader economy would be much greater. And so in some ways, it's, it's, a, it's a prudent action by the government because the government is there as ultimately an insurer of last resorts um, against these type of things. But having said that, because they have that responsibility, they should be careful about their responsibility for monitoring these systems. And, and so that's why I started by saying, I think we should always be careful about these and cautious. So, so that almost suggests that that perhaps there was a little bit of complacency that you know, that and, and you know, in Rosemary's introduction, she she brought up the 2008 event, you know, and that, that was a, that was a pretty uh, scary kind of, very, you know, kind of got everyone, it was front page news for an extended period of time. And then there's this lull. And, you know, this, this nice lull where everything seems like there's never, there's no concerns at all. And then it surfaces again. So, so, you know, you had suggested before we even started, the, before we started this recording, that this is, 
this is not the first time this has happened, that, that this kind of, uh, I don't know, tweak to the system, this kind of blip in a system is pretty regular. Can, can you just talk a little bit about what, what this looks like relative to 2008 and maybe some previous times things like this have happened? Uh, sure. So if you if you go back historically, um, you can go back a long ways historically throughout the U.S. Um, financial system and then into Europe, all the way back into Roman days, if you want to, for, for banking stress. I mean, the, one of the main things is that the bank system is what allows our economy to operate. And so if we don't have a functioning bank system, people are not allowed able to to store their money safely. They're not allowed to are able to process payments, to make payrolls, to to get loans for a variety of different activities. Um, so it's a really an important system. And it's, it's based off of the basic idea of putting in deposits and then the bank can take those deposits and use them to make loans, right? So the very old, you know, 1930 kind of, I think what most people envision the banking system working, looking like is the fractional reserve system. So you would put in a reserve, I put a deposit in $100 and the bank could take some percentage of that, a large percentage, maybe 90%. They could lend that out, it'd become a mortgage or it'd become a personal loan. And the person would take that deposit in another bank, they could lend 90% of that out. And so you get this kind of multiplier effect that happens of, of the creation of money. And so that's one of the really interesting things is these banks are able to actually create money. And then you, you always have this worry um, that's kind of twofold, because typically the deposits are demand deposits, meaning they're that you can go and show up and you can ask for the money at any time. And and the the bank does not have the opportunity to invest in things that can be made liquid immediately. There's just not that many opportunities to invest. And so you invest in things as a bank that are going to sometimes are very long term and sometimes are shorter term. But the goal is to invest in a way that you get enough money coming back in that you, you can meet the demands that people have for the deposit. So the, the big challenge that happens in a banking crisis is that people no longer trust that the bank is going to be able to make good on those assets. So, so either the asset is considered to be a credit risk, meaning they don't think the person you lent to is going to give it back. Or we have a, a new idea. I mean, it's not that I knew, but it, the idea of what we call a duration risk. So a duration risk is where the bank lent money out at a very low interest rate because everything was very stable and calm. This happened recently, right? We've had very low interest rates. The Federal Reserve has been buying lots of money, lots of bonds and putting them on their, their balance sheet, um, literally. It, I mean, it's, it's actually during the pandemic, it more than doubled the, the amount of assets on the Federal Reserve. And we're not talking a small amount. We're talking something in the order from $4 trillion to $8 trillion worth of assets were pulled out of the system and put into the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve. And so if you've got this very low interest rate and suddenly there's something like inflation that happens. So when the Federal Reserve sees inflation, central banks, their response is to raise the interest rate because that's been slows down the creation of money. You raise the interest rate, all of these assets that banks hold broadly throughout, literally trillions of dollars worth of assets suddenly have to be devalued because the interest rate they're paying is much lower than the interest rate the Federal Reserve is paying. And so suddenly you have this shock to the whole system where you know, you've got to have assets above liabilities. And suddenly you get the shock that's like this. And people are not sure, was it this much? Or did it actually go below the liabilities or not? And so the, the challenge we're facing right now is not 
I mean, Silicon Valley's got kind of a unique portfolio of, of loans they make. They make loans largely, well, most banks do them regionally around the geographic area. And so they are lending out to entrepreneurs and to kind of maybe some higher risk activities. But they also own a lot of long-dated mortgages. They own a lot of long-dated treasury. And so when you see that interest rate go up, it just shifts down. And, and then you get people saying, hmm, I'm not sure I want to be here. And they say, I'd like my money back. And then the Federal Reserve and the regulators will say, you can, you can pretend like your loans are at the value, the par value you paid for them. But when I go and say, I'd like my money, you have to sell them. And that then, then suddenly you're at 80% or 90% of what the regulators said you have. And then what Federal Reserve, sorry, Silicon Valley Bank did is they went and said, we need more capital. So they went and tried to sell stocks. And whenever a bank tries to sell stocks, that's a huge signal. Everybody goes, why are you selling stocks? Why do you need, why do you need this capital? And, and, then, and then people started doing this calculation. They're saying, okay, um, do I want my money there? Right. Because I got to make payroll. I'm going to lose, you know, just I, this is I'm not lending you money. They don't people don't think of it as a lent money. And, and for most of us as consumers, we don't because we have the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FDIC, and they'll insure our deposits up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars, which is a lot of money for most people. That's you know, most people don't keep that kind of money in their checking account. Uh, but but companies keep millions of dollars in their checking account. And they have no guarantee. And so the, the companies that were at Silicon Valley Bank were saying, you know what, I'd rather have my deposits at one of the big four, those four banks which are considered to be systemically important institutions designated by the federal government. They have more than a trillion dollars in assets on their balance sheets. And it's like a JP Morgan or a Bank of America, these, these type of institutions. And people said, I'll just take my money out of Silicon Valley and put it over in Bank of America, put it over in JP Morgan. Because... I've got a very high level of confidence that the U.S. government will not let those banks go down. They could let Silicon Valley go down, and that may not or may or may not have an impact. And so, so that's a dynamic that that is is not uncommon. There's different ways it shocks, and um, this is very similar, very similar to the story with the savings and loan crisis that happened in the 1980s and 1990s, where you know out of the New Deal with Roosevelt, he was trying to get more financial resources into broader parts of the population. So they started the thrift and savings and loan institutions, and they would loan mortgages, home, you know, kind of personal loans, automobile loans, but it was it was not mainly business loans. But it became primarily a, a mortgage operation. You have lots of these organizations, so you think, oh, there's no risk really if one of them goes down. But they're all doing the same thing. They're all holding mortgages. And then for no fault of theirs, um, interest rates had to go up from Paul Volcker because inflation was going out of control. So inflation goes out of control, and they're seeing they're saying, "Oh no, I've got mortgages that are 30 years on that I'm, you know, getting five percent on, and suddenly interest rates are at 14 percent. And I, in order to get depositors, I've got to offer them more than the three percent I was offering before. And and so we had the Resolution Trust Corporation come in. It was set up by the government, spent 130 billion dollars worth of taxpayer money, and that's that's the definition of a financial crisis. So, so these things happen. I, and I think we have the same kind of thing. There's a lot of stress throughout the entire system because the Fed has been raising the interest rates. And it's not come to the point yet where we have a formal entity created by Congress with, with assets to go and back. And maybe they will use, try to use the Fed's balance sheet for a while longer. But 
I do worry about that. I do worry about having $8 trillion on the Fed's balance sheet with kind of no plan to pay it back or no way to plan to unwind it per se at this point. John, when we found out we were talking to you, I crowdsourced amongst my colleagues for questions because this is something that we've been all talking about for a while. And one of okay. my one of my colleagues, um, this is I'm going to read his question pretty much verbatim, but he wrote to me, Derek Thompson of the Atlantic and Plain English podcast has been talking about what he's calling the low interest rate phenomenon to explain how things have looked stable and growing over the last decade, but how they're really the result of a cheap money investing environment. And he sort of wanted to see kind of what your perspective might be on on that and whether that sort of helped fuel the situation we're in now? Um, cheap money does fuel all kinds of challenges. So, uh, yeah, I do think we have been. I, I think we're exiting a cheap money uh, environment. You know, the, the, the Federal Reserve kind of under Alan Greenspan took the position that you handle financial turmoil, business cycle booms and, and particularly the bust by just simply making money very inexpensive. So after the financial crisis, turn out the financial crisis after the internet bubble burst, right? So, so that, that burst, it did not have a real impact on kind of the operational business climate. It really kind of impacted people's pensions more than it did the, the bank balance sheets and so the ability for the financial system to continue to function. But the Federal Reserve just lowered interest rates and flooded the market with money so that people could kind of re- more easily, you know, when, when the cost of money comes down, then your willingness or ability to take risks, certain risks, in, just increases. It goes down a certain level. You can, it's now the expected return is sufficient. I'll go ahead and try a different business opportunity. I wouldn't have tried in a higher return in climate, climate, for example. And so, this has been a policy perspective. After the 2008 financial crisis, we were in an extended period of not only low interest rates, but we had the quantitative easing strategy, which was where the central banks would go and buy longer dated. So, you know, the, the interest rate is about like overnight. So it's very short term lending and the Federal Reserve controls that and that then propagates out through the system. But but they actually went out and bought bonds that were 10, 15, 20 years in maturity. And they, because they're so big, they buy these big they go out and buy these things. No one's going to go against them because they have an unlimited balance sheet. They can just buy as much as they want. So it forces the interest rates down all across the yield curve, all across the maturity of the of assets that you can buy. So I do think we are in that. And I, and I, well, I think we're probably actually going to be honest. You're listening to Stats and Stories. And today we're talking about risk and regulation of banking with John Lichty. You know, I, I was looking at our local news headline, the front page of the paper on Sunday. And the headline read, experts, banks, look for ideas to halt next failure. And then the, the, the subheading was, crisis occurred despite no shortage of warning signs. And, and you know, as you were saying, I mean, it's, this, is not, this is not something new that, that has not been experienced before. That there is sort of this, there is a, this is, you, you pointed to 2008 as a relatively recent uh, time when this obser was observed. So, you know, what's... What's the kind of intervention that can be done to kind of lessen the chance of this into the future? Um, well, part of this is a political problem, right? So, so, so it's when you put a politician in charge of physical policy, they can write checks. Um, literally, is what happened in this last. So, and. And there's a timing, right? So you, you've got to be really careful about the timing of putting 
stimulus money into an economy. So I think it was very timely during the pandemic when, when people were being unemployed, businesses were contracting, lots of people suddenly didn't have income. Um, then that was actually very helpful because it helped keep people with resources that helped then stimulate limited demand, which kept companies going and kept people and families whole and together. But then when you got towards the end of the pandemic, and it's always hard to know, you know, when the economy is going to start coming back, but it looked pretty strong when Biden came in, it looked like it was growing. And so, so, you know, you had employment expanding, you had people getting jobs, you had them creating wealth. Um, and there's always inflation is the number of dollars chasing the number of goods. And suddenly you added a whole bunch more money and it was not the same environment as earlier when, when the market was contracting and that money helped basically kind of level things out. It just exploded on top of it. And so that then gave the inflation shock, right? So how do we solve the problem? Well, uh, inflation is never good. And I think it was a political decision that I personally didn't support. Um, I told my wife, I said, I don't think this is going to end well. Um, I'm concerned about the Inflation Reduction Act, misnamed as it is. Um, it'll just add to this concern that we have. Um, so what could we have done from the regulatory side? So the regulatory side, really, Donald Trump said, we're, and Congress agreed, there's a law passed. I think it was a law. Maybe, maybe it was just an executive order. I think it was a law. To go back and double check that, that only the, the really big banks, the four biggest ones, have to be stress tested, have to be looked at very carefully, have to have their balance sheets put through a variety of different scenarios of what the economy might look like in different, very difficult, challenging, potential um, situations, and then see which of the banks would potentially fail and then get advice back from the regulators how to adjust their portfolios to try to be more resilient. So we basically excluded all the rest of the banking system from that more rigorous because it's expensive to do. It's hard to do and expensive to do. So we, we then, but even, even in that situation, it, it seems like the regulators that were left because they weren't, the banks were not left unregulated. They just weren't regulated by, by the federal reserve for this particular you know, designation as being systemically important. But people seem to just miss this basic play that if you buy long dated bonds at a low interest rate environment, and inflation comes and the Fed response to it, you're going to have a real big hit to your asset portfolio. So that's that's one thing that I think we could have regulators pay more attention to. You know, there's some other things that I don't have definitive knowledge on, but I, I always worry about. And, then, and it's the alternates to our fiat money system in forms of the cryptocurrency um, products that are out there. And uh, you know, I, I personally don't invest in those. And I, anybody asks me, I tell them I don't think it's a very good investment. My, my basic reason, I think there's this huge political risk. I don't, I don't conceive of a central bank, a, a, a government giving up their ability to control money to cede that to some other entity. I think at some point, if they get, you know, Bitcoin or whatever gets to a certain level of, of size, there'll be ways that the governments will curtail it. And so then that, that crash came down as well. If that hit some of the balance sheets, some of the balance sheets were, you know, in the higher risk venture capital type world, the Silicon Valley, so that had a hit on it too. So all of those are kind of hard to foresee, but, but the basic play here of long dated, low interest rate assets on the balance sheet and not having some provision for what happens when the Federal Reserve, for political reasons or technology or other reasons, decides they have to intervene, that's something we, I think as a society, really haven't solved, to be honest with you.
the other regulatory thing I think that's missing really is we don't have a good framework for deposit insurance for large companies, for companies that have got, or even small companies, above this $250,000 threshold. So I think it would be prudent for the U.S. legislature and the regulatory community to come together and find some kind of specifications. It could be, you know, banks have to have a certain designation. Um, there could be a separate insurance fund that doesn't touch the res residential um, insurance fund the FDIC runs. It could still be run by the FDIC, but just needs to be funded differently so there's not a cross-subsidization. Um, we have different asset classes they can invest in, but but give the banks and the companies, sorry, give me the companies a, a product and a tool for operation that is, is safer and more secure. I think that would be, that would help mitigate some of these challenges. I know that um, you helped push for the creation of the Office of Financial Research. And I wonder if this might be a good time just to sort of ask, what kind of data is that office gathering that perhaps it wasn't pre-2008? And, and is there data available that might have helped people get a sense of, of this thing that was oncoming? So I started that effort at a, I didn't know a lot about the banking system. And I went to a a workshop that one of the main bank regulators had put on in the National Institute of Statistics. It was kind of a joint thing. The Office of Control of the Currency regulates the national banks in the U.S. And and we were supposed to be talking about kind of research problems, so kind of statistical, kind of technical research problems. And I I listened to everybody talking, and I they were all talking about what they call Basel One and Basel Two regulatory frameworks. That's about individual institutions, nothing about the whole system. I said, this is, you know, I raised my hand. I said, this is kind of crazy. Why aren't we talking about the whole system? Who's got data on the whole system? Uh, who's in charge of, I figured somebody, I figured the Fed or somebody had it. And the answer was nobody sees the entire system. This group sees one part, that group sees another. Other parts of the system are not seen at all. And it was pretty clear from the tenor of the conversation that nobody was going to share their data. Not unless the president of the United States sat them all down and said, you must share. So we thought, I, I mean, I personally thought that was just, crazy dangerous like how can we have such an important part of our doesn't matter what if you're on the left or the right if your financial system is not working well we will achieve none of the goals we would hope to achieve so i helped organize a small group we we went for a legislative response and said these are the things we think need to be in this entity it ended up being called the office of financial research and it was about being able to mandate and collect data system-wide and, and the industry was really in favor of this because they have all kinds of troubles and expenses they put into actually just trying to keep track of all the transactions that they do. So they have a standardized list of companies. Every company at that point, probably still to this, well, we have a legal entity identifier, so it's probably been solved. But at that point, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, they would have deals with subsidiaries. They have like thousands of subsidiaries and they have deals and they have their own internal identifications for these different companies and they would never match up and they'd spend like $2 billion a year in the back office clearing and cleaning up all of these things. So there was, there was strong support and motivation to pull this together. But, but what was that really targeted towards? What it really was targeted towards, I would say, is the part that we didn't understand well was more what we call the shadow banking system. Right. And so the shadow banking system is a system of their financial companies typically set up by large established um, investment banks or commercial banks. Uh, and they, they play the same basic role 
that a traditional 1930s bank would have played. So the basic role of a bank is to give short-term funding, lines of credit to allow you to operate, to you know, kind of smooth out fluctuations in your payroll and accounts receivable and such, and to give you long-term capital loans to go out and go build factories or to you know, buy large amounts of inventory. And so those are the two functions. And the shadow banking system is, a, is like I said, a series of, of markets and companies get formed that, that kind of extend that, um, those two basic capacities. And that's the part of the system that was not well monitored, not really well understood by the regulators, uh, maybe not even by the people that were creating it. And, and so the Office of Financial Research, I think that was one of its primary objectives was to try to help us keep track of, measure, organize. So we have a swap repository now, which um, is one of the, you know, if, if banks do swap deals, swapping credit risks or other things, not an exchange, and there's a centralized repository and that information gets documented. So there's a, there's a number of things that have been improved, but, but I think the shadow banking system essentially got contracted after 2008. If you look at like the commercial paper market or the tri-party repo markets, these have come down quite a bit. And so I think people move more back into traditional banking. So I'm not sure the OFR, other than maybe scaring people or watching people and they say, oh, I don't want to be here. I wouldn't say they scared them, but, but, but I think maybe people just felt there was better protection from the Federal Reserve and, and the regulators if they stayed in the more traditional banking system. Uh, but, but that's a really interesting dynamic that shadow banking system, because it, it's what created the really big systemic problems in 2008. Wow. You know, one of the things, as, as you've been talking about this, I, I, I found myself thinking about, you know, who should own the risk of investments, you know, and what when the banks are, are putting out loans. I mean, you, you described this idea of credit risk, you know, sort of whether something's going to fail, you don't get paid back for the money that you lend. But this idea of duration risk that you're buying, you know, this financial instrument that that maybe locks you in at something that's not that where there's if there's volatility outside of that, that that you're going to be at, have trouble with this. But it, but it seems that, you know, you, you had said that up to maybe 90 percent perhaps is re, is is loaned out. You know, the, the, the banks do do work with this money. Should they have kind of should should it be more should be kept on board? Should you know, should they be more at risk of of kind of the decisions? Should they have more responsibility for the decisions that they make possibly lending in a way that's that's that has higher risk? So the the fractional reserve system does not exist anymore. That that's that's thinking back 1930s. Maybe I don't know. I, I'm not sure when they transitioned. Maybe as late as late as the 70s. Um, what they use now is they call risk-weighted capital. And so essentially it's a discussion, a negotiation between the bank about the assets they're holding and the regulator about whether they feel that's sufficient to cover the liabilities that they have in their deposits. And so that's why you can get things like duration risk kind of sneaking out of the radar because they say, look, it's just treasury bills. They're just 10-year treasury bills. Like we don't think there's any credit risk there. The U.S. government's going to pay that back. The regulator says, okay, it's 10-year treasury bills. And they say, look, we're, you know, we're in a period of trying to come out of a recession, out of the COVID, so the, the risk of a interest rate hike is very low, and so they have this kind of conversation. Now, as far as who should hold what risks, now that's and, and can you build? And that's where a lot of financial innovation, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae were set up in a way that helped um, take mortgage risk, long-term mortgage risk. So if you're in the United Kingdom, for example, where I'm at right now, you can't get a 30-year mortgage. 
you can't every every I think 15 is the furthest you can go. It might be even less than that. You have so you have to carry this interest rate risk personally. Whereas essentially, the U.S. government said we'll help back an aggregator of mortgages that can then more efficiently manage this duration risk in, in a central entity called Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, and and that is going to be um, a way to provide a 30-year mortgage to the to the general population, right? So uh, whoever wants to put capital at risk can take these risks. That's that's fine. The the question really, I think, more is when should the the U.S. taxpayer be backstopping particular risks that people are taking? And I think it should be pretty clear. Like we should be we should be transparent about that. There's a lot of ways it can be done, but ultimately, as a taxpayer, I should know. And that's part of the challenge we have right now is that when President Biden says we're going to backstop all deposits in choose a class of assets, choose a class of banks. Um, that is not something that the legislator is granted authority for, right? The FDIC has got legal authority to go up to $250,000. It hasn't got legal authority to backstop all institutions. And so when we have these events where essentially the legislature miscalculated, right? They, they did not foresee situations, scenarios, and, and when you're in the financial crisis of 2008, for example, and the Secretary of Treasury and the Chairman of the Federal Reserve walk into a group of senior lawmakers and say, if we don't put $700 billion into the hands of the Federal Reserve to backstop our system, it will freeze, it will stop the function. And by the time all that damage works its way through, you, say, you might say, just let the cost happen. Just let it work its way through. You could potentially see, I don't know, it's hard to guess, maybe a third of our total capacity to produce goods and wealth disappear, maybe a quarter. It would be substantial. It would be so substantial that if we would have done that, I would view China as being the dominant economic power in the world today. I think it would have switched in that dimension, that direction. And so you sit there and say $700 billion or, and, and just imagine you're going to stay in government after that, right? So it, it's not going to happen. So it, it's, it's a process that keeps evolving. I, I, don't, I wish I could say this is the perfect way forward because sometimes the problems happen outside of what anybody would imagine. Sometimes they're technology innovations. Sometimes they're financial product innovations. So the financial crisis of the savings and loan was sparked by inflation. John Ginocopoulos at Yale's got this great paper that basically makes the case for and outlines how the introduction of credit cards is what spurred that bout of inflation. So you introduce credit cards, suddenly everybody, everybody, everybody's offering credit cards. This is money equivalent. You can take the credit card and you can change it for things that you can buy with dollars. And suddenly you get this increase in the money supply that is is not being paid attention to maybe by the Federal Reserve, not necessarily controlled. It's coming out of banks. It's coming out of all kinds of different financial institutions. And that's what that's what caused the ultimately the government to have to come in and rescue the savings and loan institutions. So it's, it's very hard to predict where these shocks would come. So you do need a, an active ability to have a dialogue. And occasionally, the other thing you, you mentioned, John, you know, it's an interesting question. Like we could we could solve this problem. 
I could just make banks have to keep 50% of all the deposits in cash. So, so what would happen then? Well, the amount of capital available to invest in new innovations and new operate, you know, new opportunities within our economy would, would substantially decrease. I mean, think back to pre, you know, banking systems back in the medieval England, not England, sorry, Italy is where you got the Medici's and the, the banking systems that we kind of look at today coming into existence. And just think how much wealth they were able to generate and how much prosperity. It did concentrate, no doubt, but but it had a tremendous effect, effect on the whole economy and society. So it, how much do we want? I, I can't answer that question. So it's, I think it's more of a political question, to be honest with you, because if you if you make the requirements really low, the banks will lend that money out. And if money's easy, they'll try people will try all kinds of very interesting and sometimes devious or questionable things, and then they'll come a crash. And so is your, are you better to grow really fast, have a contraction, grow really fast, have a contraction, or grow slow but have very little chance of a contraction? Which it, it's kind of – that's what the political debate's about in this arena in my view. I'm going to pull a Baylor and ask one very short, quick question oh, here at the boy. end. Because I am curious, like, as we're recording, you know, the, the news about First Republic – um, seems better than it was a day or two ago. Uh, and the Fed is meeting right now to figure out if they're going to hike interest rates again in the midst of all of this. And I wonder, over the next few weeks, what are you going to be keeping an eye on as far as sort of what are what are things that you you think we should all be watching out for? Um, and, and maybe, like, what would for you be a signal that, that something major is, is on the horizon if you see it? Um, that's a really great question. So... I think UBS was a signal for me, the fact that it's something outside the U.S. system um, and, a, and an institution of that size with that kind of diversity. So I would look for other international turmoil as, as being a potentially broader problem. It's a really hard question right now because if the Federal Reserve does not bring inflation down, we've got ourselves in a very difficult situation. We have spent a lot of money. We have a very large debt. Every point that goes up in that you know, point of interest rate for the Federal Reserve raising takes away – well, it won't take anything away per se, but it just adds much more debt on because you, you know, suddenly the, the proportion of the federal budget available to service everything else is, is going to be dramatically – We've got ourselves in a situation where our economy really, really needs to have a low interest rate um, for the government to function well, but we can't do that with high inflation either. High inflation will will cause its own deterioration of problems. So it's it's really hard for me to to see the right way forward. I mean, it, it would I would be somewhat irresponsible to make a policy recommendation without all the information that the Governors, uh, the Federal Reserve Board, see, but but it's, it's challenging, and it, and it does show that, in my view, it shows that some of the popular popularity, maybe or the way the popular population went after and supported some of these early movements, you know, the the checks that we would get, it, it, you have to pay for these things eventually. We're, we're better off, in my view, trying to take a little bit of a hit help each other out, 
try to you know, find ways to move forward. And if there's a loss, there's a loss. But let's take it on, on the chin. Unless, unless it disrupts, destroys the whole system, let's band around, help each other, and then let's, let's get a little more responsible. I really would like to see spending coming from the central governments in Washington being more aligned with, with what we can actually do with regards to our economy. There's some problems we're just not going to be able to tackle in the way we'd like to. But we will eventually if we can keep the economy strong and grow. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that indicator of other international banks is, I think, a, a good a good one for us to all watch out for. So thank you so much, John, for joining us today for this episode. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcast, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. Thanks.